Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins, for resurrecting to life on the third day, for being with us now in the person of the Holy Spirit. We are grateful, Lord. Worthy is your name. You are worthy to receive honor and glory and power and all dominion, all authority is yours, and we celebrate that today, God. We, we ask that as we spend a few moments in your word today as a family, that you would melt away the cares of life that would cause us to be nearsighted and miss the truth today. We ask today that you would prepare our hearts, even through the preaching of the word and the way we respond to the word, preacher included, that we would be ready to worship you at the table of communion when we take the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. Father, we ask that you would do a work in us that we would, in fact, be the answer to Jesus' prayer when we leave this place today, that we would be the laborers sent forth because the harvest is plentiful. All of these things will only be accomplished if you do a work in us so that you can work through us. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Jude 24. When I put that up initially, I always look at that reference I have on the slide for you and even those of you watching on that lower third on the stream. It always takes me back. I have to remind myself there's one chapter of Jude because otherwise it looks like I'm preaching two chapters of a Bible book today. That's not what's happening. It's Jude, uh, one chapter, verses 24 and 25. While you're turning, are you aware of this business communications tool that came out years ago called a positive sandwich? It's a personal communications thing. I see some eyes and everybody in mid-level management and above has been trained or been the recipient, even though our intelligence was insulted at times, of a positive sandwich. Let me give you an example. It's where you have a word of criticism that needs to be given, but uh, you don't want to just kind of start with that. So you start with something nice, yep, a positive thing. Then you insert the criticism, and then you finish on a high note. So that's the sandwich. The slices of bread, nice, and the uh, meat, for you vegetarians out there, peanut butter, whatever you eat, I don't know, but um, that middle part of the bread, middle part of the sandwich, rather, is the, is the criticism. Bad example, let me give it to you, the kids here. You ready? Here's how it goes. Your hair looks good today. Your breath stinks. Wow, look at those shoes, right? So that's, there's a positive sandwich. Please do not deliver the lunch today, okay? That's not, that's not the way we're going to do that. Um, increasingly, though, as a note to all of us who have received those and thought, what in the world? Harvard Business Review suggested in 2013 that you might be undermining your feedback process doing it this way. They define it as a unilaterally controlling strategy which only works if everybody buys in, meaning they can't know it's a positive sandwich if it's going to work for you. It doesn't work. Just be honest with people, transparent, be kind. 
but be honest and transparent with people. If we're not careful, sometimes we look at the Psalms, we wonder if the psalmists are maybe bipolar in their way they write things, right? They seem ready to have the world burn down in one second, and then the next second they're like, but Lord, do a work in me, you're gracious, you're God, you're holy, save us all, right? In another sense, if you read Jude intact, which you should, you did this morning in your group Bible studies, you will this week as you spend time in it in your daily discipleship review or daily disciple guide this week, it can look a little bit like Jude is a positive sandwich. It's not, because he starts with this, I really wanted to write to you about this great salvation, and then he finishes with this, one of the most beautiful doxologies and benedictions in all of the New Testament. And then the middle is dealt with false prophets and apostasy and angels fighting over a body. I mean, just crazy. You're like, what is going on? Well, I've already preached some of Jude. Last year, I preached 17 through 23. This morning, you handled in your group Bible studies, all ages, what it looks like to contend for the faith. So today, I want to look at this epistle in view of this incredible doxology. The letter of Jude packs a powerful punch. One of the main thoughts and characteristics of this letter is that he is dealing with false prophets and the apostates and the false teachers that were rearing their ugly head then. No internet, no social media, no fake news. They were just showing up and trying to cause division in the church. Jude would be known as Jude the Obscure to us. Actually, he wouldn't be known except for this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, included rightly in the canon of Scripture. He's crying out for followers of Jesus to be on guard, and he tells us what's against. He he says, don't just react to bad things when they show up. Be ready to contend for the faith with the heresy of Gnosticism in view in its earliest stages. I want to cover the context a little bit that gets us to the beautiful doxology. So let me deal with it. Gnosticism is a big word. And young people, it is spelled all kinds of funky. It starts with a G, (laughs) right? Because why not? Um, Gnosticism, it it celebrates wrong things, anti-biblical things. And Jude is writing this beautiful doxology right in the midst of Gnostics creeping into the church. Here are some of the characteristics we see on display in Jude. There's an emphasis on knowledge that is divorced from morality. I've covered this before with you in another lesson, but just for the sake of those here today and listening today. Where knowledge is king, that could describe our day today. We weaponize knowledge in our current day. That's, that's a tenet of Gnosticism. Where I know more than you know, so I'm better than you, and you're less than me because I know more than you know. That's Greek Gnosticism at its finest. Arrogance toward unenlightened church leaders. It shows up here in Jude. It showed up in the early days. Arrogance. Complete dismissiveness of those who are not believing, thinking, and acting the way that you believe, think, and act. Uh, An unhealthy interest in angelology. Unhealthy interest in angels. Uh, Too much focus on the spiritual realm, as it were, and spiritual warfare. I love Alistair Begg. I I don't listen to his preaching too much because I'd be preaching with an accent. That's how much I love him. I mean, he would just influence me that much. But one of the things he said was, you know, spiritual warfare is in the Bible. It's in there. In the 66 books, it shows up like this. 
And it's there, it's real, it's a very real thing. He said, so I don't understand guys who in their preaching career preach it like it's in there like this. Right? It's there, we need to deal with it. An unhealthy fascination with angels. Divisiveness is a characteristic of Gnosticism. And then a great word that we use almost every day in our common modern vernacular, lasciviousness, or you King Jangers, uh, licentiousness. <laughs> um, yeah, what does that mean? It's driven by sensuality. I want to feel something, and not just feel anything. It's behavior completely lacking in moral restraint, often with the implication of, watch this, extreme sexual immorality. When did Jude write this? It sounds like Jude's warning could be read today. Now, why cover that? Because sometimes we've watched enough kids' Christmas plays right in churches where we think Bethlehem was this sweet little town and everything lined up perfectly and then Jesus showed up, right? And we read sometimes Bible stories, oh, it sounds like he was dealing, there, were, there was a little bit of trouble he was pointing at. We also hear preaching today where preachers sound like they're being brave and courageous by attacking things that there's no real battle to attack. Like it doesn't cost them anything to name a sin that nobody in the church is dealing with, right? And so we think everything kind of going along hunky-dory. This is stuff Jude's contending with that's crept into the church. Jude's initial desire with the letter seems like he wanted to write about salvation. Let's put verse 3 on the screen for you. Look at verse 3 in your Bibles. The Bible says, Beloved, Jude writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, although... I was very eager to write to you about your common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You see the shift? The letter unfolds like this. Verse 3 steps up. Here's the header for you. You, don't, you can take this note if you want to. It's not from the main sermon point today. But verse 3 sets up the contending for the faith. And he makes the case for it in verses 17 through 23. That's where he makes the case. Look with me at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here's the second part of the letter, two main thrusts of the letter. The first is contending for the faith, and here he unpacks that there are very real challenges to the faith, and then he takes verses 5 through 16 to support his case. That's, that's a Jude overview for you if you're taking some notes. You, you covered a lot of that this morning. As we make our way to the doxology, here are some of the things he encouraged we as Christians, he encouraged us rather, to do as Christians. We're to remember the words of the apostles. We're to keep ourselves in the love of God. Not keep ourselves saved, but keep ourselves in the love of God. We're to build one another up in our most holy faith. We're to wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will appear. We're to have mercy on those who doubt. We're to save others, be involved and on mission with God, snatching some of them from the very fire and have mercy on those even who are unrepentant. Those are some of the calls of action that you covered already this week. This isn't a positive sandwich, but I want us to land now at that exalted ending that we see, that doxology. In my reading and preparation this week, I came across a wonderful note from Charles Spurgeon, which 
resonated with me because when I read now to him who is able, my mind went to the passage in Ephesians 3. And I don't want to say great minds think alike. Let's just say I had a thought and it was corroborated. Let's say it that way. So did Spurgeon's. Look at Ephesians 3.20. It talks about God's ability too. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. He notes that this verse, Paul is speaking about the greatness of God's ability in what he could do for us. Jude is speaking of the greatness of that ability in preserving us from falling and perfecting us to be presented faultless before the Father. I've given you a little heads up on the rest of the letter. Now here's what we're dealing with today. We're going to look at verse 24 with this header, what God accomplishes for us. He pauses to give the indication they should write that down. Um, what God accomplishes for us in verse 24, and in verse 25, what God receives from us. So for us, from us. I'll give you just a moment. It's beautiful, multi-textured text that we often just read as a benediction in service. One of my favorites, but man, is there some great teaching nestled in it. Let's start with one of the first things that we uncover in what God accomplishes for us. We have to notice here that we are called to experience the power of God. If I was making a, a quick note, I would just write out the word power or God's power. We, we see that on display right there in verse 24. The verse says, now unto him who is able. I entitled the sermon this morning, Our God is Able. There are likely 40 other titles that could have fit and 35 of them much more creative than that. But I need to be reminded sometimes that our God is able. So if I'm making my first note, it's that he is the God of power. We get a, to experience the power of God. Look at this. What an encouragement. God is able. God is powerful. It's a balm for anxious souls to know that you don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have all the power. God has all the power. God's not looking for you to help him out with his power supply. He's not running low. He doesn't need to be put into low power mode if he's had a long day. That's not how he works. He doesn't have a MagSafe connector that you've got to struggle to find and then figure out, oh, does this charger work? No. He doesn't need to be charged. He's all-powerful. In a world then and now that seems to measure our value by how we perform and how much power we have in a moment and our abilities, God says to you and me this morning, I've got this. I've got this. My power is enough. In a world of threats, of very real and present darkness, in a world of threats from the serpent himself, the deceiver, God says, I've got this. I, I don't have to muster up extra energy to contend with the enemy. I've got this. I'm in charge. I'm all powerful. We have the power in the name of Jesus. An old gospel tune we used to assemble. Man, we used to do Sunday school assembly when I first got saved. The associate pastor would get up in front of the congregation. We'd sing a chorus. Joel Fowler would lead us in this. He'd say, we have the power in the name of Jesus. We have the power in the name of the Lord. Though Satan rages, 
We will not be defeated. We have the power in the name of the Lord. We don't have to muster it up. We don't have to pray it up. We don't have to pray it down. God has the power. Are you encouraged this morning? God is not threatened by what the world can throw at him. This affects our worldview. I'll come to that later. But God is able. The three Hebrew boys would tell you God is able. Remember the account in Daniel chapter number 3? The king said to them, if you don't worship, you're going to immediately be cast into the burning fire. He wanted them to worship an idol that he had made. And the three Hebrew boys responded. They said, look, we don't even need to respond to you in this matter. It's a settled deal. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Hallelujah. And he's going to deliver us. He can deliver us out of your hand, O king. And in three words, we don't like to say, but they're an encouragement to my soul this morning. But if not, he's still able and we're still not bowing. <laughs> Let the threats come, whatever they be, our God is able. And God can make a way out of no way. He can part the Red Sea. But I'm here to tell you, brother or sister, if you step into the Red Sea, you may not like this, but the theology works, and drown, he's still able. He's still in charge. He's still on the throne. And it's not the end of you. For us to live as Christ, to die as gain. This is not your undoing. We were with Paul just a couple of weeks ago on a ship. Paul would testify, our God is able to deliver. Not just as creator and sustainer of, uni of the universe, is he all powerful? Not just as uh, this big God in heaven seated on this throne that we catch a description of in part of Revelation. No, he, he, he is the God who keeps us. Our God is able. Now unto him who is able to keep. I'll touch that in just a moment. He keeps us from utter destruction. All power in heaven and earth is his. And he's choosing to steward it. Watch this. For our good. Can you imagine? Have you ever tried to call a politician and get something done? Local leader, regional leader, state leader, national leader? They have a team of folks answering them. To get something done, they require what? Hundreds and hundreds or thousands and thousands of their constituents to make noise for them to figure out what's the most politically expedient way for me to act on their behalf that doesn't cost me. But no, no. our God has all power and he knows your name. And he's stewarding his power for your good, to keep you. We notice his power, and then that bleeds right into the second thing we notice. We experience the promise of God. God's promise. Look at what he says. He's going to keep us, and he's going to present us. Now unto him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He's able to keep you, and he's able to present you. Just a side note here, I love when we attend business luncheons or functions or even ministry dog and pony shows and somebody gets up and says, and now for a man who needs no introduction, and then they proceed to lavish this long, lengthy, verbose introduction on him. I would love one time, it seems like something that I think Norm could pull off with conviction. Norm could stand up here and say, and now for a man who needs no introduction, and just walk off. I, I love his sense of humor, and I, it, there are certain things that I, I script in my mind for certain people like you to do, and, and just know that. I have fun with that sometimes. 
But, but here's a God that wants to present us, and not without introduction, but blameless and spotless. Why? Because I'm so holy and I've got this figured out? No, because he's able to do a work in me. Wow, what a God. He's thinking about you. He's planning for you. He's working for your good and for his glory. The psalmist got it in the Old Testament. He said, how precious are your thoughts Oh God, how vast is the sum of him. When we call, he answers. When we're in trouble, he shows up. He rescues us. He honors us with satisfaction that the world knows nothing about. This is our God, and he's able. He's not promising just to get us out of a jam, to get a ticket fixed for us. That's not this kind of power appeal. He's not our cosmic bellhop waiting on an instruction or a request. No, this is the God who promises to safely deliver us, his children, into his glorious presence. And he stacked the deck in his favor. Unfortunately, I don't want to say if you're like me, because I pray some days you're not. But unfortunately, those of us who have been Christians a while, we can lose, lose a little bit of the excitement of this. Tragically, the exalted promise that thunders from the mouth of Jude can be met in Christian circles and churches with a bit of apathy and indifference. There's a story of a man who walked more than 700 miles to see Niagara Falls. 700 miles. When he came within a few miles of the destination, he thought he heard a thundering roar. And he saw a farmer out in his farm, tending the farm, and he said, hey, is that the roar of Niagara? And the farmer said, I, I don't know. It may be. The traveler said, don't you live here? The farmer responds, yep, born and bred here, lived here all my life. The traveler says, and, and you don't know whether that noise is coming from the falls and you've lived here all this time? And the farmer responds, no, stranger, I've never even been there. I'm too busy looking after my farm. Can you imagine being that close to something so spectacular and living as though it didn't exist? Can you imagine children of God with access to the Word of God, with the Spirit of God living in us, living so close to the glorious presence of Almighty God, but living as though it doesn't exist? We are headed for eternity with the lover of our souls. We are bound for a city whose builder and maker is God himself, where the sun is outshined by the glory of the Lamb who was slain and is now our resurrected king. Let's not get so nearsighted, so consumed with the cares of this life that we forget that the children of God are headed for a destination with wonder and majesty that have never even been imagined by anyone on this side of eternity. May our journey be marked with the great joy that God promised to us that's dependent on his power, not our circumstances. As we get to verse 25, we see that God receives some things 
from us. But before we get there, I want to notice God's person. It transitions 24 and 25 together. If you look at the verse, the verse talks about to this only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'll pause there. I've got those little words on the screen for you. All of this is made possible through the Lord Jesus Christ and the finished work of Calvary, where he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God where God commended His love and extended His love on us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You and I, sinners, deserving of eternal separation and punishment and wrath from this holy God because we transgressed His law. We rebelled and said, nope, we're going my way. We want our anthem not to be blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, but I did it my way. And God says, depart from me, workers of iniquity. Right? That's what we deserved. But God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the work of Christ. We have all of this through Jesus. Think about it. This whole epistle of Jude is not really about false teaching or apostasy. It's about Jesus. In your study this week, it'll show up clearly through that daily discipleship guide. In your lesson this morning, it started to thunder out. You're contending for the real faith. Delivered to the saints, but paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 1, Jude said we're kept for Jesus. In verse 5, he said the Israelites were delivered from Egypt by Jesus. In verses 9 through 14, the earthly bodies of saints are protected in death and resurrection in Jesus. In verse 25, we come to see that all of this is possible through Jesus. He's everything to us from the first to the last. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. The hymn writer said, Julia picks it on occasion, I love it, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch, that's me, his treasure. David Helm, wonderful writer, wrote this sentence about it. In one sense, it would be true to say that Jesus has been the gravitational center holding Jude's entire letter together. Is Jesus the gravitational center of Grace Covenant Church? Yeah. It's not a hidden agenda. It's not a bait and switch. It's why we do what we do. It's why we worship the way we worship. It's why we pray the way we pray when we gather as men, when we gather as women, when we gather as students and children, when we uh, pour our resources into local ministry partners like Faith, Hope, and Love and Change Choices and Love Life and other ministries. It's all about Jesus. He's the gravitational center of our world. We don't do this because of a, even a, a methodology, even a cause. We do it because of the Christ. Let's look finally at this last piece, and we're going to talk about praising the Lord. Verses 24 and 25 of Jude. We're going to read it intact. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ, that's the person ready, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Finally, here we experience the praise of God. 
all of this tucked in this beautiful little doxology, this beautiful little benediction. We join with heaven. Jude alludes to what John caught a glimpse of in Revelation 19 when he said, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude of heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory belong to our God. We join with the multitude of heaven in worshiping our God. Let me touch those words very quickly this morning just to define them so that we understand what they are and what they're not. Glory, he says. You see it in the text? To our God be glory. Glory. James Merritt writes, I love it. Glory is an attribute that is inherent and intrinsic to God. Glory is as essential to God as light is to the sun, as blue is to the sky, and as wet is to water. You don't make the sun light. You don't make the sky blue. It is blue. You don't make the water wet. It is wet. Likewise, we don't make God glorious. He is glorious. We don't have glory tucked away that we give him. When we give God glory, what we're doing is acknowledging his glory. It's beautiful. His transcendence, his perfection. Majesty was a word there. The word is megalosini in Greek. It speaks of our Lord's greatness, his status as the king and sovereign over all. There's no court higher. He wasn't elected to office. He sits on the throne as king, and he's inviting us into his presence. Dominion, another word for power. Kratos in Greek. You hear Kratos, creation. He has power over all creation and control, which speaks, bleeds into authority. His absolute and incontestable right to rule all things. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got me and you, brother, sister, in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands, but not just the world. Heaven, earth, and all points in between. And then finally, we see his timelessness. He's worthy yesterday, today, and forever. Brother, sister, this morning, friend who came in, who may not identify as a Christian, I'm here to tell you, the God of this Bible is able. His power and his promise, the nature of his person, the gloriousness of his praise remind us that he has the whole world in his hands. Why does a passage like this matter more than just a call to worship or close to worship? Because when we get this, church, listen, it affects our worldview. You see, when we get this, we don't worry about human extinction. It's not a possibility because he has all things in his hands. When we get this, we don't worry about nuclear annihilation. It's not a possibility. He has all things in his hand. Evangelistic defect, not a possibility. He has all things in his hand. Missionary failure, not a possibility. He has all things in his hand. Losing our salvation, not a possibility. He has all things, including you, in his hands. He's glorious. He's majestic. The God of this Bible has dominion. He has authority. And he's victorious. He wins. All of his foes are vanquished. Hallelujah, the songwriter would say. What a Savior. We know that corporate worship and everlasting praise will be the eternal privilege of those of us who are in Christ. I'm landing the plane now. I'm going to ask Julia to come and she prepares to play a reflection piece for us that will transition us to communion. Listen carefully. We read a passage like this 
we do just a tiny bit of digging in a passage like this and we see we have reason to bow the knee right now and worship. Why? Because we worship the God who is able to keep us from stumbling. We worship the God, a Savior, who's able to present us blameless because he is able to save to the uttermost because of what he has already done. We worship a God that is able to escort us right into the presence, the glorious presence with great joy. We worship the only God. We worship the only Savior. We worship Christ alone for us to live as Christ. We acknowledge that he is glorious we bow before his majesty. We submit to his dominion and authority. We worship the one true living God who is able, who was able, and will always be able because he's God. I want us to rehearse one moment together. Revelation 4, verse 11. Mark, if you'll throw that on the screen for me. I want us to say this out loud because this, John heard us saying this in heaven. When he caught that glimpse, let's say it together now. It's a right response to a text like this. Let's say it together. Ready? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. In the midst of great opposition, false prophets popping up everywhere, Jude was able to focus on God and see that he was worthy of praise. Why? Because he was wrapped up, tied up, and tangled all up in Jesus. You've got stuff going on in your life. You, you may not rightly identify with Job, but there's suffering nigh your house and door, things spinning out of control. I would even suggest that you have false prophets that pass by your mind, trying to whisper doubt. We can blame it on media and culture, all that. Listen, I can stir up enough doubt myself if left to myself apart from this word. Thoughts that say, does Jesus, if, you know, if Jesus really cared, if that were really true, if, 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 that's the lie of the enemy from the garden. Did God really mean that? Did God really say that? But if our life is hidden in Christ, we can contend for the faith. We can worship our God because our God is able, even when we're not. His power working in us causes us to walk in a way that brings him glory and honor. Let me say to you, suffering saint, he's got this. He's able. God is able. Let me say to this friend who's yet to put your faith in him, he can handle you and all your baggage and all your heartbreak he is able i wonder do we live so close to his glorious presence and so consumed with the cares of this life that we don't even realize how close we are let's not be like the farmer right near niagara take a moment ask the Lord to remind you in whatever way he sees fit that he is able. Let's pray.
Dear Lord, as surely as you are the all in all of everything that is sacred and blessed, Lord, you are worthy of glory. It's yours. You're worthy of honor. Lord, you are majestic. All dominion and authority is yours from now and for eternity. And we say thank you for the privilege of just knowing you. Like Paul wrote, we want to know you even more deeply. The power of the resurrection. When we remember your one all-sufficient sacrifice with this moment of worship and reverence that we're about to enter into, Lord. We know that we need your blessing on our poor worship so that we might discover the deeper meaning. Come to your table this morning, dearest Lord. Sit, not as guest, but as king. We're the guests at your banquet. Everything at the table is yours. The bread of life, the fruit of the vine. Come, Lord. Come to your banquet this morning. Come to your church, to your table, to your house of prayer, to your ordinances. Come, bless us as we remember. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen.